Just a few weeks ago, most people in Ireland wouldn't have realised that not all the state's hospitals and very few of the state's schools are actually owned by the state. In fact, an awful lot of our education and health infrastructure is tied up in various trusts and voluntary organisations, many of which are ultimately run on a religious basis. In the last couple of weeks, that has become a major scandal, particularly where it overlaps with what goes on inside a woman's body. I'm Gavin Riley, and that was The Week. There has, of course, been other stuff in the news this week, but it's been very difficult to escape the serious, almost wall-to-wall coverage about the National Maternity Hospital and what kind of religious influence it might end up being under. Now, from the very outset, I should remind you that this particular row has taken on greater significance since the findings of the Citizens' Assembly on abortion were produced last weekend. They were covered on a separate podcast last Monday, so if you need to be briefed on them, I'd recommend going back to the last episode first. They will tell you everything you need to know about what the Assembly recommends and exactly where we're going to go from here on the whole area of reproductive rights. Assuming you're on top of all of that, you will now know that there is a new political snowball coming in the direction of the government about this whole area and a formal recommendation to allow a pregnancy be terminated for any reason at all within the first 12 weeks and then for a series of separate other reasons in the first 22 weeks or in some examples even up to full term. Now, All of that and the whole question mark about what women can do with their own bodies has coincided with a scandal which has several people exercised for several reasons. So let's go back to the beginning of that. In 2013, the National Maternity Hospital, which is based on Hollis Street in Dublin, announced plans to relocate to a brand new building which would be built adjoining St Vincent's Hospital, which is just a few miles down the road in Elm Park, just outside Donnybrook or just outside Merion on the south side of Dublin City. That is standard modern practice nowadays for a children's hospital or a maternity hospital. They try and co-locate it with an adult hospital so that if an adult is around and needs urgent treatment or if there's special surgical procedures that are available next door, that that's where a patient can go. The reason it has to move out of Hollow Street, by the way, is that it's been based there since the middle of the 19th century, but in actual fact, parts of the Hollow Street building go back to Victorian times when Queen Victoria was on the throne, and generally speaking, the hospital is just monumentally cramped and not really suitable for the sort of workload that it now has. But it seems no one ever thought too much about the whole question of who would own the new hospital, and in fact, only last November three and a half years after the deal was first proposed did the two hospitals Hollis Street and St Vincent's conclude a deal on the whole oversight and governance and ownership of the new facility there was one thing that was agreed at the time which has only emerged in the meantime which is that St Vincent's would retain total ownership of the 300 million euro hospital that's being built with money from you and me and the St Vincent's hospital group is owned by the religious sisters of charity And given that religious groups tend to bar certain procedures in their hospitals on religious grounds, that means that certain terminations or even other procedures like sterilisation or tubal ligation, which is where you have your tubes tied, they aren't offered in some Catholic hospitals. So what would then happen in the country's National Maternity Hospital if the state's new laws on abortion happened to be subject to religious restriction because they weren't agreed with by the Catholic Church? Now, there was an awful lot of discussion on this in the last week and a half, a lot of it particularly unedifying, and it brought one family into near civil war. Hollow Street's previous master, Dr Peter Boylan, opposes the move. He says the hospital would be subject to religious influence out at St Vincent's. The current master, Dr Rona Mahoney, supports the move. She and Peter Boylan are brother and sister-in-law. 
They both appeared on RTE's primetime on Tuesday to discuss their positions being interviewed by Miriam O'Callaghan. Rona Mahoney was first. She gave Miriam a tour of some fairly cramped conditions in Hollis Street. As a doctor practicing here, I have to say to you that one of the most lonely places in the world is to be in National Maternity Hospital at 3am with a massive obstetric hemorrhage. Every year in this hospital, we transfer approximately five or ten women across the city who are in a critical condition. These are women who could die, and they are transferred because we have no intensive care facility here. Is part of the problem that you're so desperate to move from this hospital because it's old and the conditions are bad, that you're blinded to the problems that will and may exist in Vincent's? This is absolutely not the case. We have been working on this project since 1998. We have recently been through three mediation processes over months. And at the heart of each of those processes has been our absolute and fundamental commitment to ensuring that our hospital will have clinical autonomy, financial independence, will have its own governance system. But how can you be so sure that when you hear someone like a senior cleric, like Bishop Kevin Doran saying, if it is owned by the Catholic Church, it has to abide by the rules of Catholicism. And IVF, for instance, isn't allowed. Miriam, let's be very clear. This agreement has been thought about. This is a separate company. I have never met Bishop Doran. He has not been involved in any negotiation, is unaware of any detail in relation to this negotiation. After that pre-recorded tour, she then spoke to Peter Boylan. The board of the St. Vincent's Hospital Group issued a statement, as we know, earlier today, and they said, and I quote, that they issued the statement because of the continued misinformation and untruthful allegations being made by you. And they also went on to say that the clinical independence of the hospital will be enshrined in the memorandum and articles of the new hospital and that any medical procedure which is in accordance with the laws of this republic will be carried out at the new hospital. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. Um, the statement from the hospital today said that in accordance with current uh, clinical uh, policy, current policy and procedures at St. Vincent's Hospital Group today, in line with current uh, procedures and policies, that doesn't mean that you've got to be very careful about what they say because they're very clever. Now, that doesn't mean that it will be policies in the future. And they say any, any uh, policy that's legal, any procedure that's legal today can be, can be done. There is a problem, though, in the ownership structure, uh, and it's very clear that any property, any property that's built on church or state uh, religious-owned uh, land has to abide by the rules of the Catholic Church, and that's very clear. There's no argument about that. But are you suggesting, and I know there's been a history in this country, that one day a nun is going to run into an operating theatre, wait, in the new maternity hospital and stop a procedure taking place? I mean, what are you suggesting? No, that's not going to happen. But the structure as it's, as it's designed at the moment with the board structure, take for example, on that board you will have four people whose views are fundamentally opposed to a substantial amount of the work going on in the hospital over which they have overall corporate governance. Now, that's a recipe for conflict. The other thing that's really important is that the non, it has been said that there will be no financial benefit, despite the fact that $300 million worth of asset is going onto their balance sheet. And I find it hard to believe how there's no financial gain in that particular situation. But it's said that they will have no uh, financial gain from it at all. But that's just kind of hard to believe. He mentioned in passing there that the agreement between the hospitals had been published, and indeed it was during the week, so I went and looked at it. And what it provides for, as Peter Boylan said, is a nine-member board which will have total autonomy and independence in how the hospital is run. 
Now, four of those members will be appointed directly by the St. Vincent's Hospital Group, which in turn is controlled and wholly owned by the nuns, the Sisters of Charity. So four people could be appointed effectively by the nuns and four people by the current Hollis Street representatives. Bear in mind, by the way, Hollis Street isn't owned by the state either. Hollis Street is not totally independent of the church as it is. It's got a hundred different shareholders, all of whom wear various hats. By law, the Archbishop of Dublin is its chairman, and the parish priest of Westland Row is also on the board as well. So Hollis Street is not a totally secular institution, but it is not within the current control of the church, if you want to put it that way. So St. Vincent's and the nuns who own it would get four seats. The current Hollis Street framework would get four seats. That accounts for eight. The ninth seat would be filled by an international gynaecological expert who would be chosen by a search panel of three members. But St. Vincent's gets two of those three places, so if push came to shove, St. Vincent's would be able to pick whoever they wanted. And if they were so motivated, they could therefore push through a fifth nominee. They would have a majority on the board that they're trying to control, which could potentially include the power to regulate clinical decision making and what sort of procedures could be offered to the women of Ireland. Now, there is some kind of external oversight on all of this. The Health Minister, Simon Harris, will have a so-called golden share which will stop the board from sacrificing any of its clinical autonomy without his approval. And it also allows him to stop the hospital from being used for any financial gain on the part of St. Vincent's or the nuns. The financial side is fair enough, but the fact remains that Harris is unempowered to intervene with the board unless it's giving up its autonomy. And that autonomous board could have five members out of nine who might push for a certain religious ethos. And that means that there's little Simon Harris can do to intervene if that happens to be the case. The deal does go on to say that the hospital will act without religious, ethnic or other distinction, but that's not to say that it will act in a secular way in terms of what treatment it administers. We have to be very careful and say that that only applies explicitly to the patients that it takes in. In other words, it won't distinguish between Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Hindu and atheist patients, but that's not to say that it won't administer a Catholic form of healthcare to all of them, irrespective of what their religion is. The other question that arises in many people's minds, even if the hospital was implementing everything that the law can allow and there was no Catholic influence, is what would the nuns want to do owning a maternity hospital in the first place? Why would they want to be in that kind of industry? And that was a question that Dr Rona Mahoney faced the next morning when she spoke to Audrey Carvel on Morning Ireland on RTE. St Vincent's Healthcare Group are going to make available a large part of their campus right in the heart of their clinical services area and they're making this available to women and children so that the co-location can be absolutely maximised in terms of joining up buildings at theatre level, ICU level and that is done on medical grounds to ensure that we can offer the safest possible care. But there was a clear dispute over governance. That's why Kieran Mm. Mulvey was brought in. So what did the Vincent's Healthcare Group get out of this agreement? So we are the first of the co-locations. So we are the first people to tread this path and it was imperative for both hospitals that the integrity of their clinical services were protected and that has been at the heart of all of this negotiation. For Hollis Street, the fundamental principle and heart of this negotiation has been that we would have autonomy of clinical services, complete financial independence and complete autonomy over the clinical services that we deliver. And I will refer you to the statement made by the St Vincent's Healthcare Group where they also confirm that there will be absolute autonomy of this independent entity that will be on their campus. So both But you're not telling me what clear. they got from this agreement. I They're, can see why you're happy with it if what you say is, is the result of it. But why would a religious order, which owns the hospital, 
why would they agree to clinical and operational independence which could result in a breach of their Catholic ethos? But there won't be. This is a separate company. So there will be no breach of Catholic ethos for the nuns. It's a totally separate company and it is very likely in time that there will be a lease arrangement so that this is nothing to do with Catholic ethos and the shareholders have nothing to do with the operation of the hospital. But they own What's the hospital. Vincent's, the ownership is a technical thing because they own the land. I mean, no matter where you have this hospital, whether it's in St. Vincent's, St. James's, on a GAA pitch, the state have a complete charge over this land and the usual agreements are put in place in terms of the grant agreements, the licences and very likely a lease agreement. Agreement. And that's all normal. And um, with the greatest of respect to Rona Mahoney and her undoubted wish to get a new facility that better meets clinical need, there wasn't really an answer there. Why would nuns want to own a maternity hospital? I put the same question to the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, later the same day. People who simply can't understand what a religious order would want to have to do with owning a new children or maternity hospital, particularly with the whole area of reproductive sure. issues and the likes, and who therefore conclude that the only reason why they might want to is because they might want to further their ethos in its treatment. I think, I think that's not fair. I can understand the concerns that people would have in relation to this, and that's why I'm absolutely determined uh, that all of those concerns will be robustly addressed through legal and contractual arrangements and through the teasing out that I'd now like to take place uh, in a month where we do need cool heads. We're not going to sort this with tit for tat, he said, she said on a daily basis in the media. We need actually a little bit of space here to sort that out. But I do also think if you look at the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group, St. Vincent's Hospital is one of our leading hospitals in this country. It's a teaching acute adult hospital. The way it's been talked about in recent days would suggest uh, that it's a convent. It's not. It's an awful lot more than that. And I think it's very important that we can understand that it makes sense for the St. Vincent's Healthcare Group to want to actually provide the best healthcare possible for their patients, including women who are using our maternity services. That's why I think it is. In fact, you could turn the question on its head the other way and you could actually say that the St. Vincent's Hospital Group could have put that land to better use from a commercial sense were they motivated in relation to doing that. And the fact that they have decided after being asked by the state could this hospital co-locate there uh, I think is a sign of their commitment to women's health. I do think, Gavin, we need a broader discussion just like we've had in relation to schools and education, I do think we need ultimately to have a broader discussion about ownership in general across the health service because I've heard commentary and discussion in the last week to two weeks that has suggested that the Minister for Health and the Department of Health and the HSE own all of the hospitals. That's not a legal reality today. And if you look just around this city, there are many hospitals not even within the ownership of the state. Uh, the forum on plur uh, pluralism and patronage that Rory Quinn set up uh, in the Department of Education in 2012 I think is a useful model. And in due course, I, I intend to go to government with similar proposals in that regard. The board of the Hollis Street Hospital was to meet that night, ahead of which another board member, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Brendan Carr, spoke out. He is also on the board, like the Archbishop of Dublin, because of the office that he holds. He didn't attend the meeting last November where the board first approved this deal with St Vincent's. In fact, he thinks he shouldn't be on the board at all because he's not a medical expert. But now that there is public outcry, he says that it's his duty to get involved and act on public concerns. He told me that Simon Harris should step in and buy the land altogether. Since it's emerged now in the last week or so, what's actually happening here and the concerns have been raised to me, I'm obliged as the first citizen of Dublin, as the Lord Mayor of Dublin, to raise those concerns with the board. But it's also it's very important to say here, the board are, you know, everyone is dedicated and committed to having a world-class hospital here for women and children. But it's the Minister himself, the Minister for uh, Health, who could actually CPO the land and take the heat out of this debate. And I'm not just debating over who's running the hospital, who owns the hospital. We can start debating how the hospital can actually benefit the people of Ireland. 
Bear in mind that buying the site instead of having the free use of it could cost the state possibly up to €100 million. This is a huge site in a very leafy part of South Dublin, but that was also ruled out by Simon Harris that afternoon. I I appreciate uh, very much the interest of the Lord Mayor, which is entirely appropriate, um, and it's it's appropriate that public representatives take an interest in this. I would point out, though, as many politicians on on different sides of the political spectrum have, that compulsory purchase um, is not uh, the ideal solution here in any way, manner or means, because we need to build this National Maternity Hospital. We don't need to be caught up uh, in some potential legal difficulty for a large number of years. We've also got to remember the site is being donated free of charge. Um, So there are a number of issues that need to be teased out. The board meeting went ahead on Wednesday night with a huge majority of members once again voting in favour of the planned move to St Vincent's. That meant that the following morning Dr Peter Boylan, the former master of the National Maternity Hospital, felt he could no longer stay on its board. Well, I am grateful that no motion was put to ask me to resign from the board last night and uh, I appreciate that. However, today, on, on reflection, I've decided that I am going to resign, and I have resigned, and I've written to the deputy chairman informing of him of that. Well, as I said, the hospital will be on land owned by the Religious Sisters of Charity. It'll be 100% owned by the Religious Sisters of Charity. The company tasked with running the hospital will be owned outright by the Sisters of Charity. And uh, to believe that any, any hospital that's built on land owned by the Catholic Church is obliged to follow Catholic teaching and canon law, medical practices and procedures. And that was clarified by Bishop Eamon Dorn and also confirmed by Vincent Toomey last weekend. To believe, first of all, to take the National Maternity Hospital with the structure, uh, there is no hospital in the world owned by a religious organisation, Catholic religious organisation, that allows sterilisation, IVF, abortion and so on. They don't exist. So to believe that this will be unique in the world for the first time ever, there will be a hospital owned by a Catholic organisation that will allow all these procedures is, I think, both naive and delusional. He's joined in those fears by Professor Chris Fitzpatrick, who's a former master of the Coom. He was supposed to be the HSE's designated planner for the new maternity hospital. He has also resigned from the board. But the government appears to be sticking by its guns. It says it doesn't want to revisit the whole ownership question. It is more intent in trying to make sure that the new hospital does have operational independence in how it does its business. It seems even if that independence allows religious influence to go unchecked. But the book is not yet closed. Peter Boylan remains a governor. In fact, so does the Lord Mayor. Governors are the shareholders of Hollis Street. They're the ones who will have the final say on what happens the current facility. Peter Boylan says the shareholders have not yet been asked to approve the deal to move to St Vincent's. There is no legal document in existence um, on which the governors, the owners, the shareholders of the National Maturity Hospital can vote. And the devil of this is going to be in the detail. And the memorandums and articles of association have not been, the, the work has not even proceeded yet. It does have to be said, just in closing out this particular topic, that this isn't the only example of the state paying for something which then ends up owned by a religious group afterwards. Many people have been pointing to a clause in the Constitution this week that actually forbids the state from endowing any religion. They think that means that the state simply isn't allowed to spend any money building or doing something with an asset that then gets handed over into church hands. But it does have to be said, this is far from the first time. In fact, only in the last few years, the state has spent hundreds of millions of euro on capital investment into the Matter Public Hospital. 
The Matter Hospital is also owned by another religious order, the Sisters of Mercy. Vincent's by the Sisters of Charity, the Matter by the Sisters of Mercy. And in fact, there are many other, dozens of voluntary hospitals around the country, all of which have had state funding and state upgrades throughout the years, and all of which are still technically owned by religion. And in fact, of course, hospitals aren't the only place too. Just look at the country's schools. But almost every single national school, as they're called, is owned and run by the Catholic Church. And in that, that case, it's it's even more direct. It's not through a religious order, such as a, a group of nuns or a congregation or what have you. It is owned by the local Catholic parish. And the Department of Education spends tens of millions of euro every year upgrading schools and then making sure that you have a more valuable asset, which in fact is simply owned by the Catholic Church afterwards. It is not a unique situation, but why this one is so sensitive is because this is a maternity hospital. It is a national maternity hospital which should be able to impose the state's procedures and the state's laws unencumbered. And it's where you have that overlap between rosaries and ovaries that the whole thing becomes so much more complicated. 100 to 102 Today FM So that's where we are on the hospital story, but there is a significant other thing brewing this weekend. In Brussels on Saturday, at a summit which could in fact be long over by the time you get to hear this podcast, the EU's 27 remaining leaders will sign off on what the Union's negotiating position should be on Brexit and exactly what they should seek to achieve in the Article 50 talks that happen over the next two years as the UK begins to pull out. Now, Enda Kenning has been saying for some time that he wants Northern Ireland to be treated something like East Germany was. If Ireland is ever reunited, he says, then the North would be reincorporated into the Republic and should therefore immediately become EU territory again, should become part of the EU. On Friday, the Financial Times' Arthur Beasley reported that the meeting would sign off on a document that actually includes this clause. I think the, uh, the expectation at this point is that this uh, acknowledgement or reference will be included in the formal minutes of the, supple- of the summit, which would be published some weeks after the meeting. But uh, the sense in Brussels at the moment is that uh, the Taoiseach essentially is, is pushing an open door and that this is essentially uh, a done deal. Now, the case is made that this is merely an, a, a recognition of the facts of the situation, that the uh, status of Northern Ireland after any vote for reunification, which Dublin says is not at all imminent, uh, would uh, essentially be that it would re-enter the EU in in light of Ireland's uh, EU membership. And that, of course, is fairly good news for Ireland. It's incorporating a major crossroads somewhere in the future and could get us over some hurdles further down the line. And it was further boosted when Donald Trump And it was further boosted when Donald Tusk, who chairs those meetings, issued his own official invite for the meeting with an important paragraph. Only once we collectively determine in the European Council that sufficient progress has been made on all these issues will we be in a position to hold preparatory talks on the future relationship with the UK. I would like us to unite around this key principle during the upcoming summit so that it's clear that progress on people, money and Ireland must come first. In other words, he says there can be no talks with Britain about having trade access with the rest of the EU until the Irish question and the whole border matter is first resolved. But that does raise the whole question of what would happen if a border poll was held or if it could actually happen in the first place. Sinn Féin's Gerry Adams was clearly happy that this was now being discussed. Well, that of course is to be welcomed and, and you know, clearly there is the potential for a united Ireland uh, and the Good Friday Agreement is very, very clear about that. So one would presume that uh, the European Commission, recognising 
the International Treaty, which is the Good Friday Agreement, would also recognise the right of people here to be part of United Ireland if that's what they vote for in uh, a referendum on, on Irish unity. The question, Brendan, is this. Will that be a note in the minutes? Or will that be a uh, p political uh, part, a directorate, uh, sorry, a directive as part of these uh, guidelines? Unionists predictably less so. Here's Ian Paisley Jr. of the DUP speaking on BBC's Talk Back on Friday. Europe would find it absolutely impossible to finance Northern Ireland. Uh, Europe has never given Northern Ireland on an annual basis sums in the region of between 11 and £12 billion. Pounds. They've given back to us British money, um, which is considerably less than that amount, um, which has to come through the British Exchequer. With the UK leaving, there wouldn't be that sort of largesse to go around. So it really falls, in my view, into very much a hypothetical fantasy politics point of view that, you know, what would happen if... But of course, the fact of the matter is, and I think Mark Davenport put his finger on it, if there was a border poll, uh, people would know that they were voting to leave the United Kingdom and go into Europe that could not pay for Northern Ireland and into United Ireland that could But how can you be so, so sure not. that surely some of that money is going to come from the Irish government? It's not all going to come from Sorry? Europe. The Irish, government, the Irish government only started making net, becoming net contributors to the European Union in 2012-13 financial year. So they've only been able to start paying for their own country. Um, the idea that they can actually now contribute uh, to make up a gap of 12 to £13 billion pounds a year for Northern Ireland is sheer fantasy. What is actually, actually I think it points to, Tarn, I think this is where the debate will go in the next four to five years for the Republic of Ireland is that we will examine the prospect of what happens to Europe when the Republic of Ireland actually decides to leave the EU. That's a much more realistic prospect given that most of their trade, their domestic trade is with the United Kingdom and their foreign and direct investment trade is with the United States, both of which will be outside of the EU by 2019. That's, that is the real ponderable and that is where this debate should really start to focus and if, if I was living in the Irish Republic that was the, that would be the question I'd be asking my politician. And that is a fair point to raise. How would a United Ireland pay for itself and continue to keep the North running particularly when the massive public sector in the North would almost surely shrink after unity and there'd be more people looking for work. Fianna Fáil Senator Mark Daly has his own opinions on that. He's bringing a proposal to the Oireachtas Committee on Good Friday next week. He's been asked by that committee to draft a report on Brexit, on Good Friday and the prospects of a united Ireland. The report he's drawn up is over 1,200 pages long, but one of its recommendations is that the UK should continue to subsidise the North for 30 years after any referendum to leave the UK and rejoin Ireland. First of all, there's been massive underinvestment in Northern Ireland. We see that in terms of the, the motorway network and, and infrastructure that we have sought to have, including the the, the bridges uh, over Carlingford Lock and other infrastructure. Uh, but also there would be the issue, and this is an issue in relation to the EU and the Brexit uh, and negotiations, where there is a, a bill of £60 billion coming from the EU to Westminster uh, in relation to uh, long-running financial commitments that Britain has entered into as part of the EU. And they are the same in Northern Ireland. There obviously would be a lot of pension payments required by the British government uh, in relation to the security forces in Northern Ireland, relations civil service in Northern Ireland, which was not incurred uh, by the people of this whole island. So therefore, the, there would be a, a, a divorce settlement of sorts, similar to the divorce settlement in the Brexit negotiations between the EU uh, and Britain. 
In the meantime, however, this week there was one sage voice offering some perspective on what might happen if the UK leaves the European Union without some kind of transitory deal. John Bruton, the former Taoiseach and EU ambassador to the United States, was giving evidence at the Shannon Select Committee on Brexit when he talked about the effect of Britain running out the clock and leaving after two years of talks with no deal to transition into their new relationship. He says the effects could be pretty stark. 100 to 102 Today FM. And finally, just a quick stop on two other things that have been occupying people's minds in recent weeks. Uh, this podcast was on holiday when the final water deal was agreed between Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and other members of the Oireachtas Water Committee, although when I say it was between those two parties and the other members, in fact, those members pretty much didn't sign up. But under the deal, water charges that have already been paid are going to be refunded and only people who use something over the lines of 200 litres per day will end up possibly being charged. It means that only 8% of Irish households or water users will actually have to pay a charge. Here's what Simon Coveney said earlier this week when he was asked when the legislation to finally scrap charges might be kicking in. Just want to spice the conversation up. Um, uh, the, um, you know, we have actually got great cooperation with other political parties on big projects like, uh, like Odebney Gardens and so on. Uh, and it would be great if we got similar cooperation and a progressive approach towards water. Um, but look, uh, seriously, it'll, it'll, it'll take us, um, um, I think it'll probably take us another six weeks or so. Um, but, uh, but certainly before the summer breakup, we'd like to, I'd like to be able to bring forward legislation that puts into place what has been uh, agreed uh, in principle anyway uh, in the in the Oireachtas Committee uh, on Water uh, so that we can actually turn that policy agreement into legislation. And uh, so we'll work quickly on that, but it, it does take time to get it right. Has it been delayed, Minister? You said six weeks ago, two weeks ago. No, well, look, I mean, you know, I'm giving, I'm giving a figure of, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, in and around six weeks. I mean, my department is working on that now. Uh, there'll be no strategic delays for any political reasons, no. It is worth again bearing in mind that water charges kicked back in again on the 1st of April and that if nothing is done about them before the 1st of July, Irish Water will presumably have no option but to issue the bills for the second quarter of this year. And that's certainly going to complicate matters when it comes to possibly looking at any refunds down the line. Certainly it will... Certainly it'll look more like a political concession on the part of Simon Coveney if he then has to issue more regulations to suspend charges for longer than was originally agreed. The other major issue that's been occupying minds in Leinster House for, well, nearly three months now, Enda Kenny's future. It was perceived that having the general election called in Britain and then having the Stormont's talks go into deep freeze until June, as they did this week, means that effectively now there is no Brexit talks and no talks in Stormont for the entire month of May. And if he wanted to go on his own terms, now would be a good time. So people expected him to address his leadership at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party next week, only then for Enda Kenny to surprisingly announce this week that he won't be at that meeting because he's going to Canada to meet the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. As it happens on Monday of this week, he turned 66 years old and the inimitable Senna Maloney in trying to ask exactly where Enda would go from here had a unique way of putting it. Happy birthday, first of all. You're on fine fettle. You're off to see Justin Trudeau. Thanks, sir. sir. <laughs> Fitter than I am, Tisek. You're going to Canada next week, but my question is, how long can the Irish people reasonably keep working like this? Um, I've, never, I've never lacked, I think, in energy, Senator. But as I said, I'm looking forward to the, to the visit to Canada. They've requested me to go there for the last five or six years. I think there's a real opportunity here following the CETA agreement with Canada and Europe. 
uh, for Ireland to do much more business with uh, Canada. I'm looking forward to meeting uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. I did meet with him very briefly in Paris at the Climate Change Conference, uh, and uh, I look forward to meeting with the Irish communities and Canadian Irish business interests in the in the time ahead. Uh, for me, I've never lacked either the, uh, the resolve or the energy. Uh, but I, as I said already on many occasions, um, I, I, I will make my position very clear to my parliamentary party in the near future. No doubt he will be doing that in the near future, but that is something he's been saying for three months already. 100 to 102 Today FM. That's our lot on this week's podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Gavatodayfm.com is the place to send your feedback. And don't forget, now that we are on iTunes and apparently on Podcast Addict and Stitcher and a few other platforms as well, don't forget to like, subscribe, give us a rating, do whatever you can to help us keep the podcast going. Uh, a like or a review of some sort on iTunes stroke Apple Podcasts will be very much appreciated. And of course, you can always still get us on soundcloud.com and also on the Today FM website. That's todayfm.com and indeed through the app. Uh, we'll see you next time with more digest of what's going on around Leinster House perhaps we'll have more certainty on Enda Kenny's future then doubt it but you never know until the next time I'm Gavin Riley, and that was the week